You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. John Austin, nickel back to Tampa Bay. Give it to Gurley. Gurley extending to the goal line. Touchdown. Todd Gurley. That puts him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. To an all-new episode of Turf Show Times Radio. This is your boy Josh Webb, and as always, I am joined by my partner in crime. Although I think he might not be up for committing too many crimes tonight because he is sick. <laughs> Mister Mycin or Mycin, how you doing, man? I'm uh, pushing through, pushing through, dealing with a little bit of the flu. You know how that goes. Well, I do. I do. And you and I bonded over the fact that we're both horrific babies when we're sick. Oh, yeah. I turned into the world's biggest baby when I'm sick. (laughs) Words my wife calls me when I'm sick is I can't use on air. But, yeah, she feels the same way about me when I'm sick. But that's okay because when she doesn't feel well, I pamper her left and right. So it's it's sort of a give and take. Uh, I just happen to take far more than I give. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. But <laughs> everything that she calls you. <laughs> <laughs> but we have an exciting show today, man. We are, among other things, going to be talking about the NFL draft and some of the mock drafts that have finally been coming out with the Rams on them. Because as most mock drafts that have been put out are first round only, that leaves the Rams out of the picture. In order to do that, our good man, Brett Lancaster, secured us the services of Mr. Dan Hatt. Dan, how are you doing today? And also, uh, let me make sure I get this right. You are the Director of Scouting Development for the Scouting Academy. And in the past, you have worked for both or for the Eagles, the Jets and the Giants. And it would be fair to say that you are an analytics nerd. <laughs> uh, I am I am open to all things that would improve the player acquisition process. And uh, so, yes, I do get a little nerdy on some of the new things that are out there to help us scouts in our old time film evals. And to be sure, there is a di- there is a diverse set of opinions on how it should be done. I was actually talking about this with my roommate like the other day. We were talking about trouble with the curve and and sort of like when Clint Eastwood's old timey approach to scouting versus the new age analytics. But um, one of the things that that uh, often comes up with the Rams, especially lately, 
has been the capital that they spent to acquire Jared Goff. What I want to do is before we get into how we can help this team, I'd like to get what your baseline assessment is of the Rams as they currently sit. With Goff being the franchise quarterback, Aaron Donald obviously being the franchise defensive player, where do you think, where do you see the Rams in the overall NFL landscape? So I think the the most interesting thing to me is not the roster, it's the upcoming front office changes. Um, and one of the things I feel like maybe needs to be clarified just based on how some of it was reported, uh, the Rams have not fired four people from their department my understanding they have simply notified four people that are under contract through the end of the draft that their contracts will not be renewed uh this is not a new practice what's new is it being uh brought all the way to media attention this happened last year in cleveland as well historically scouts if they weren't going to be uh kept there is a precedent to be notified that they're going to be moving on and allow them to talk with other teams about employment that only, you know, you're still kept from talking about draft boards or um, any of that kind of material that is uh, proprietary to your former employer at that point. But those four moves and, and any subsequent moves that may be made post-draft or at least uh, we find out about post-draft, that's where this whole thing kind of starts for me. And intriguing this this one class, just like every other year, is another opportunity to to add players to the roster. But where are they uh, going to direct their efforts, and, and who might be coming to assist in in some of the stuff there is very intriguing to me moving forward. But coming back to your question, where do I think the Rams are at? I think they're with a lot of other organizations where everybody has needs. There's not a team in the league that doesn't have immediate starter needs. It's just the sheer volume of them. And then where else can we put things together to get our 46-man roster together? Uh, like every roster, there are pieces. There are pieces that are attractive. You have a guy like Aaron Donald. Every team would want such a player. So they're certainly not devoid of talented individuals. Uh, obviously, the performance hasn't been there. But, uh, again, I don't see this as being four years away from being successful. You know, you do some of the right stuff. Um, I think they could be competitive faster than most people think. And I want to get your take on this because <clears throat> there have been, well, there has been some consternation over the draft classes under Fisher. And if you go back and look at some of the classes that were taken under Fisher, you see a lot of names on there for some universities that a lot of people have never heard of. Now, while I get that this happens a lot in the NFL draft, with the Rams, it seemed to happen more frequently. I'm not sure if there was a four-year university in Mississippi that they did not draft, a, or a Missouri that they did not draft a player out of. Um, <laughs> is this something that's common, or did, did the previous regime just not have a great understanding of, well, evaluating talent. It's, it's, I, I don't know if there's another way that I can put it. So where, 
just remind me again, uh, first class for Fisher and company, would that be the Brockers class? Or is I think it, actually- it would be. Mycin, is it is it the Brockers class? Yes, that would be the yeah. Brockers class. You know, I think the the intriguing thing for me is probably where some of the players were taken as opposed to who necessarily was taken. Agreed. So, you know, again, that, that first class, uh, Tremaine Johnson, and we can debate over whether he's worth a franchise tag, but been a quality player in the league, uh, taken in the third round. You know, Brockers is a quality player, not necessarily interior pass rusher. Uh, so maybe the draft position of 14 might not be ideal looking back on it. But again, someone who's been consistently productive. Um, you know, Janoris has been a good player. And as you, you can go through each of these classes, I'm kind of, I have it open in front of me here. I'm just taking a peek at it. Um, I don't think that it's completely, you know, um, terrible. This isn't the worst thing ever. I understand how you can look at it in a vacuum, but, you know, I can pull up the Patriots draft history of the same period of time, and I bet you they have fewer, you know, players that are of a uh, Donald-type caliber, things of that nature, um, coming through there. So... The league's not very good at this from a hit rate percentage. Bill Polian, you know, anytime you talk about him, this is a Hall of Fame general manager, three different teams to to incredible success, talks about if you can hit on 50% of your picks, you're doing all right. And then it's about do those picks come together and build consistent 46-man rosters that win, and that shifts over into coaching and player development. And I heard a segment today, um, Lewis Riddick was talking about for all of us that are consider ourselves scouts or draft analysts or whatever vernacular you use in that, we're, our value is basically done. You know, we've watched the film. We've talked about the players. Now now we get to find out what really matters, which is when you plug them into a building, does the building have a plan for them? The building know how they want to bring that player along. I think Tavon Austin is probably the one that most people point to for Fisher's tenure and say, this is a guy that you spend premium draft capital on. And it did not seem like there was a consistent plan on how to activate him in a manner that was going to break that thing open. Ironically uh, enough, the feedback that I get from Rams and I just, I own that I interject because I want to get your opinion on this. It's related. It wasn't even so much that they drafted Austin as high as they did. It was that second contract that they gave him where people are like, uh-uh, all right, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that was the problem. Like, I I actually have yet to have anybody come. Maybe it's because it's too old, you know, it happened too long ago. But I've actually had yet to come to any anybody come to me and be like, I can't believe we wasted a first round pick on that guy. It's more that they paid him $45 million. You know, sometimes you get into situations where again, you, you've got to look at that 46 and you got to have somebody there um, that you feel good about. And when the Brian quicks and Chris Givens and Stedman Bailey's, <laughs> um, you know, and you go from there, haven't exactly developed as you would have hoped in the process you may have just been staring down the barrel of, well, if we let Tavon go too, then then what do we have? Um, you know, and I'm not saying that's necessarily best practice, but you got to field somebody out there 
and there are floors in terms of cash and cap spend as well. So, you know, again, that kind of, <laughs> I guess the long way of saying I certainly understand the the frustration with it. Again, to me, if you think the player's got ability and you think the ability, if if maximized, is worth X dollars, I, I can get there. I can say okay, but then you actually go have to go activate him and get him to that level of production. That's a very fair perspective, one I hadn't considered before. Myson, what's up? What you got? You know, just to kind of touch on that a little bit, it's actually interesting. I was um, just recently um, looking at the um, the draft from that year. Um, I was kind of putting together my uh, newest mock, and I was looking up some information, and something kind of caught my eye about that. Um, the Tavon Austin pick, now while – he hasn't been the number one receiver or anything like that. But if you you scouted him, you paid attention to him, you probably should have never really expected a receiver that was going to have uh, 80 catches and 1,300 yards receiving, you know, year in and year out. You know, um, he that's not that's not what he is. Uh, is. Is he a good player? Yeah, absolutely. But he's not going to be that that next Larry Fitzgerald or something like that, a guy who's going to just consistently go out there and be your number one threat that's going to scare defenses. But oddly enough, he actually, the, the pick itself actually worked out in the uh, Rams' favor. I mean, if we all remember, that draft just was not a good draft at all um, as far as talent. Um, there was a lot of reaches. Um, teams kind of picking players just because they had to. Um, and the Rams really won that trade if you're looking at just off of a uh, performance base, uh, Tavon Austin has definitely outperformed EJ Manuel. I think everyone would agree with that. Um, EJ Manuel is even with the Bills anymore. You know, so when you really just kind of look at the grand scheme of things, yeah, they traded up for, you know, a gadget player who probably his best season that he might ever have is probably going to be, you know, a 850-yard receiving season, you know. But, however – he does kind of bring more to the table with his ability to run in with the return. So you kind of balance that out a little bit. So I, I, I don't really bash on the pick as much as others, but I do. Th- I agree with Josh. Just the overall value that's been invested into him is it's a uh, mind boggling. <laughs> I'm so surprised that that Barrett Jones pick didn't work out. Like I'm legitimately yeah. surprised by that, but I'm also not as good at, draft analysis is you two guys jones's biggest issue was health he just couldn't get his feet right you know he was having these toe issues and stuff so that's different <laughs> but anyway back to the uh point here um so when i look at this draft um i i, I think about just kind of i'm always looking for guys that's flying under the radar and stuff like that because those guys bring so much value because they get so overlooked and they're always out there. They exist every year. And whenever I'm scouting, that's my favorite thing to look for is who, you know, who I think might, you know, surprise some people. Um, one of my, one of my favorite players, uh, I have about 10 of them uh, that I really, really look at. And I'm like, okay, what's he going to do? What's the chances that he could do something if he's put in the right system, right we put on the right team. Um, one guy that I really like is Dylan Cole, the linebacker out of uh, Missouri State. Like, what are your thoughts on him? And about where do you see? About what round do you see him going in? So you caught me with a player I haven't studied. 
today. <laughs> so it, it, hey, it, it it happens. This is uh, yeah. you know, from where it's a my, lot of players out there. <laughs> no, it, it's fine. The, the, yes, there's a lot of players. Teams are going to go through 800 to a thousand of them. I don't even get started yeah. on college process until basically the Senior Bowl with what we do at the academy. Um, so, you know, this year, my priority, we, we put a draft guide together at ITP, we put a hundred players on that. So I've been focused a little more towards the top of the draft in the last two years. I was doing that search the last two years I was going out and I was, you know, basically crowdsourcing who are the guys people are debating on or the, the, un, the gems that, you know, people have found in different spots. So unfortunately I don't have a take, um, on your man there, but it, you know, I think this class in linebacker, is probably um, probably unique from the standpoint of we've come across many classes recently where there's pretty clear consensus on not just the ability but even the draft position of the linebackers. You know, it seems to be pretty stable. I think as the game develops, the college side and the the range and some of the utilization of these guys in the college space and then the projection of that to the NFL, it, I think it's getting harder for some um, to work in that space. And then linebacker, much like, you know, other positions such as wideout or DB or what have you, it's becoming a little more of, you know, uh, beauties in the eye of the beholder. I use the, the language, you know, what flavor of ice cream do you like? What kind of linebacker gets you excited? Some guys like the rangy side to side cover in space. Uh, but please, dear God, don't ask him to take on a block. You know, some guys feel like if he can't pop a lineman and stand his shoulders up, then he shouldn't be playing football. I, you know, I, I fall in between that. I think the the premium is finding the three down guy. That's the rarity because offensive coordinators will pick on that second level defender in the middle of the field. The easiest way to move the ball, if you look at the analytics, is somewhere between seven and twelve yards between the hash marks. It's the most efficient area. The highest completion percentage is there. Well, yeah, it's right in front of the quarterback. You know, it's not that far away. Many quarterbacks can make the throws, and you're typically finding hook curl defenders, which you know most likely is a linebacker. And if I can get a wide receiver in that space, he's usually a better athlete, and so forth and so on. So if you can find a guy that works in those spaces that can cover that ground. Oh, and by the way, cover the A and B gaps if they do decide to run the ball, which is a versatile skill set these days. Um, it's hard, but it's that that to me is the kind of the premium. Then we got to work down from there into uh you know what limitations does he have that i can live with versus which ones can i live with yeah i i definitely i know how you feel the there's so many players out there sometimes i get asked things like when i post a block and they'd be like well what do you think about i'd be like who wait a second <laughs> you know there, there's so many there's so many uh different players out there um but yeah dylan, dylan cole is probably that guy who's really rangy and plays the run really well um He's he kind of fits in both systems because of his size and speed and athleticism. I mean, he's about two forty and he ran a four five two at his pro day, but he was a combine snub too. So um, I mean, just what he did at the pro day, had he been invited to the combine, he would have been tops and everything, you know, with the exception of forty, only because Jabril Peppers tested with the linebackers. But after Jabril Peppers, it would have been him, and then his vertical and all of that was just explosive and. You know, he had a faster, uh, a faster three cone drill than Julio Jones. So, like, he, he's just a freak. He's <laughs> a freak bad. athlete. Not too no, bad. No, he's a freak. At, at 6'1", 240, that's pretty good. You know, hey, I think listen, Julio the, Jones the, the ran a six six six. That's the wheelhouse, man. I think that's that's another one of those kind of uh, scouting adages. And we're looking for the six three linebacker. He's not out there. 
it, it's hard to find a six three. Yeah. Move. Oh yeah, it's really you know, hard. They're, they're playing a different position. So six one is, uh, and I could look it up. Um, for a starting inside backer, that's like the 60th or 70th percentile for height. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's fine. Exactly. That's where many of the guys are living. And the linebacker one's intriguing to me from the Rams' perspective. Um, you know, from the relationship I have with Wade, he's been one of our instructors in the academy. I really like some of the pieces that are there for him immediately to step in and utilize and to have a guy like Connor Barwin able to come in and help him install from the player side. But the second level defenders, I'm intrigued. He has gone anywhere and, and worked with pieces in, in many different ways and found success with them. Um, but I, I think about some of the guys that he's had at the second level helping to call and run his defense. And I'm just intrigued to, to find out, and we will once we hit the season, if guys like Ogletree and Barron are the type of second-level defenders he wants to work with. And that's one of those things yeah. for coaches. You're going to have guys that sometimes you have to work with, just the nature of the roster, versus those guys you want to. So I'm intrigued to kind of feel that out in the process with him because the, the front looks like many pieces that he would um, – historically have used well and you, you bring in the Kayvon Webster's that that know him. Um I like Roby Coleman for what he's gonna do there. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and put yeah in absolutely. The, the second level to me is just really intriguing in his system. No, I agree with you hundred percent. I'm very intrigued to see what um what's it gonna be like with Mark Barron. I got more confidence in Alec Ogletree in his system than I do Mark Barron. So I'm really, really interested to see how this all plays out. I'm not crazy about it but we'll see <laughs> um, and, that, and that's and that's kind of what i wanted to ask next was uh you you mentioned wade phillips and and the fact that he, there are going to be some pieces on the board that maybe he just sort of fell into and and you know but ben albright's been on the show before and talked to you know at length about the fact that you know people were a lot of people initially were making much ado about the fact that the Rams roster wasn't built for a three, four. And he's like, but look like the way that Wade Phillips runs his, uh, runs his scheme basically plays like a four, three under. So, you know, you, you look at some of the pieces that are on the board and, 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 and I know license brought this up. Some of these defensive ends that the Rams have, if healthy can be absolutely brutal. So I, I, I'm very curious to see, and like you, I'm glad you brought up Nikhil Roby Coleman. Uh, you know, like I, I, I cover SC, and uh, so I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of these guys that they've been signing. But uh, I really, I, the one thing that I liked about Roby back when he played at USC was that even though he was a bit undersized, you never saw it on the field. It didn't matter that the the the, re the receiver that he was going up against. It didn't matter how big they were. He wasn't going to give him an inch. He never backed down, and that's the one thing I like about Roby. How do you see this Rams defense? And I'm 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 going to put the second question to you about lines of thought in the draft. So if you have thoughts there, save that. But how do you see this defense presently being able to get on? Because you brought up guys like Connor Barwin who come in, they know the system. He, If he's healthy, he could be a fabulous addition. I've heard people that aren't high on Kayvon Webster as an actual cornerback, but 
he does know the system and is going to be able to translate that to the secondary, which is a much-needed tool. They also went out and got Nicole Roby. So uh, does this defense improve from its wholly average ranking last year? <laughs> I have I have absolutely no problem with the players that are going to be on the line of scrimmage in their base personnel and how Wade uses them. You know, you, you brought up Albright's point before about being in under front. They're a one-gap front, and the vast majority of three-down and four-down systems are one-gap fronts. Uh, no one runs a pure two-gap front. There are systems that will use a two-gap player to help free up a linebacker, so you don't always have to insert a safety into the box. But we're not looking at a two-gap league. And then with the preponderance of nickel defense, the vast majority of the league, like 60% of the snaps in the league, and I actually love to uh, verify this, but my my gut says 60% of the snaps in the league defensively are a four-down front, a nickel pass rush front against 11 personnel, with single high middle field closed coverage behind it. You know, we're homogenized on defense. We make out, we make these distinctions harder than they have to be. You need six DBs that can play like right now in the game on your 46 man roster to get through your nickel and dime packages. And that assumes nobody gets injured ever in the course of the season. So you really need seven somewhere around that you can acquire at some point during the year and bring them to a functional level. So, you know, you're looking at the roster. Are there seven there? Probably not. Probably going to need to continue to address that. Um, where are Do they at in the front? Do you think Joyner at safety, because there's been talk about LaMarcus Joyner moving over to safety. Do you mm-hmm. think that could be a boon for Joyner? Or do you like him better at cornerback? Um, I don't know. There's something about him and how he's played and the performance he's put on tape that's really intriguing to just keep him where he is. But I understand where his skill set lies and where the roster looks like. Right now, he's probably more valuable to them at safety. And I think if they could build that section back out in time, you might see him move back to where he was before. That's fair enough. So... Now, the second part of my question is there has been a school of thought as I've talked to various different writers and draft nicks and and so on and so forth. I hope that term's not offensive. Uh, But uh, one one school of thought is that the Rams could actually, with the number 37 pick, address with a defensive alignment. Build, add to the line. Give Aaron Donald another piece. Recognizing that Robert Quinn is never healthy, you know, uh, now there is obviously the the wide receiver cornerback train that seems to be the most dominant among Rams draft. But where would you if, if you were putting on your GM hat with this team, I guess the best way to ask this question is number 37. What are you taking? Not who necessarily, what? What's most important? The board's going to be thinned out at a few spots. Uh, The premium corners are going to be gone by 37. The three three safeties that are most commonly talked about, there's a chance they all could be gone by 37. Uh, Depending on where teams are at on the different pass rushers, uh, a, a bunch of them 
will also be gone by 37. So I think what you're staring in the face is a couple options on interior offensive line. Um, maybe one of the defensive tackles. There's certainly a cluster of receivers that'll be in the mix there. And then we'll see what else falls at that point. Uh, there will still be corners on the board that'll have high grades. Um, you know, I, I think what you're looking at is one of the pass rushers that has a question mark. You know, when they all have, you know, that range, they all have one. Doesn't mean they're not good players, but they all have one. Um, Again, a couple of the corners I could see in that spot. Again, Quincy Wilson, Woozy, uh, Witherspoon, Moreau may all be available in that range. When I talk about the rushers, I think maybe the um, the Tim Williams and Derek Rivers might be available in that range. Um, the Caleb Brantleys, Ethan Pochich, or Dorian Johnson, Pat Elfline, somewhere in there. So it, it's going to be interesting to see where their Elfline's board stacks name up. Has come up a lot. With the with the Rams, yeah. the, the, you yep, said Elfline yeah. the center. Yeah, Elfline's name sure. has come up a lot because he's so versatile at, uh, along that Ohio State line. I think he's played all five positions. I know he prefers center and is probably maybe a, might be a natural center, but I know I think at least he's played once every position along that line for the Buckeyes, and and the Rams sorely need somebody who can be versatile because I don't think they know what their best five is yet. I I would agree with that comment, and then part of me is kind of disheartened to think that um, Havenstein, who I'd argue has been one of the most productive linemen on the roster, might have to move spots just to see if you can keep some lifeblood in the Greg Robinson train and things of that nature, so... Um, we'll see how that you, all plays out. You just but, won over everybody that listens to this podcast. Like, if, if you, you really if did. you gain a thousand new followers after this <laughs> podcast, it will be because of that comment right there. Well, the, it, when yeah. you so you put the question to me, where will my focus at from here? I, I agree with you that that defensive depth in the in the front and the trenches is be there. Another penetrating defensive tackle, I don't see that being available at this spot. I think you can add another edge rusher. Um, I think you can look at, again at one of these linemen um, in corner, and then I'd, I'd address wide receiver probably later on, depending on, on who's left on the board. Um, but you know, it's hard. Right now, if I look at the five starting defensive linemen, which I would assume would be Bonner, uh, Barwin at the jack with Quinn at the will, Brockers at the one, Donald at the three, and, and hopefully, I would imagine in their minds, Dominique Easley at the five, if he can get his stuff together. Um, that That's fine. That's fine for Wade. He can work with that. Now, I look at the offensive line, and I say, what's the five going to be there? You know, I, I love Whitworth's game. He's away from his offensive line coach. It's been a huge part of his existence, So, and we know he's not going to be playing there forever. Um you know, and again, I just talked about Havenstein. I have an affinity for Trey Jackson's film in Florida State, but his injuries in New England scare me. The, the recent waiver claim. Um, yep. So there, there's not a whole lot to hang your hat on. I love John Sullivan's game again pre-injury. <laughs> so you know, it, again, some of these guys could be really good if they you know can return to some level of form, but there's not a whole lot of guarantee in that. And I hear the Quinn thing. You're right. He's he's another one you can't guarantee on that either. Um, if you have two players the same grade, let's say it's a center and an edge guy, I take the edge guy because the positional value is better. Um, but I'm going to seriously look at some offensive line options at 37, depending on how the board falls. You know, I'm so glad that you just said that because that was actually just a perfect segue into 
my next question. Um, you know, when I was, you know, as I mentioned, I was just completed like my uh, final mock of the year before the draft. And as I was completing it, I noticed that it was really hard for me to find slots to put linemen in. Um, I really think in, I, every year I do three mocks um, leading up to the draft and all three, it was really hard for me to find slots to put linemen in into the first round. And I really kind of get the feeling that, you know, this year is not the, not because there's not linemen that's not good enough. It's just that the first round is so loaded with talent this year at the skill positions. I really think that um, there's going to be just kind of an overflow into the second round of the of, of the linemen. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how many linemen do you really see possibly going in the first round? Because in my mind, I'm thinking there's probably going to be about four <laughs> or five at the most. Um who probably have secured their spot in the first round. After that, um, I think there's going to be a lot of lot of players for, across the board for the line position that's really going to slide over to the the second round there. Oh sure, you know I think Ramchick and Bowles are locks for the first round. Tackles a important position, and different teams will, will respond to those guys' game. Slamp, arguably the best offensive lineman in the draft class, so I think he's a first round lock even though most want to position him inside. Um, I think Cam Robinson is a tackle, and I think teams in the league that see that, I think he'll be more bottom of the first round. I'm struggling to find a fifth guy to put in a first-round conversation. I think that you're right, probably four. I think it's those four. So I think when you sit there at 37, the beginning of the second day, there'll be some movement above those spots for 33 and 34. Some team, like you know, when uh, the Giants went up to get Landon Collins, will sit there that night and the next day, look at their board, see a first-round grade, staring them in the face all day, make a call, make a trade. There'll be some action. Again, probably some more skilled guys. Um, but I think you can hold steady and, and look at that trench play um, without having to, you know, to really worry about it. No, I agree 100%. Um, so, now with that being said, if there was a um, position of need that wasn't on the line uh, that just kind of spilled over, and I know you touched on it a little bit already as far as uh, some of the guys, some of the positions that would fall to 37, but if the Rams could move back, because the, the one thing about the Rams Less need. He doesn't like to sit still. <laughs> you know, he's all over the place. He he doesn't. He never sits still. He has yet to have a draft where he sits still. <laughs> he is going to trade. I am one hundred percent convinced on it. And I'm of the mindset, and Josh has talked about this quite a bit, that he can You're still move up back question. into the first You're round. <laughs> I'm of the mindset he can move up into the first round. But we're not going to get to that yet. <laughs> right now, if the Rams were to move back, what's a position that they could move back, you know, into the uh, the upper teams of the second round, you know, move back to like pick 13, 14 of the 15 of the second round and still be able to get a quality player? Like what would be a good position that would probably still have good depth there? I think you'll see uh, a cluster of receivers down there at that point. Um I think that those offensive linemen we were kicking around before will be will be gone the top of the second day. I think the the, the really top end of the corner market will be gone. Uh, I think the top end of the you know the first eight to ten pass rushers will be gone. So well, that'll be forcing other positions down. So I think you'll be staring in the face um, from a, a you know a need perspective 
uh, again, probably that wide receiver position would seem to be the most available between 45 and 50 or so. As Mason Mason brought up, though, we we, we had kicked around this idea, and and Mason's actually playing it down. Originally, he was the one that brought it up. He kind of swayed me into the idea that this could be a good thing while I was initially against it. But you you look at the Rams maybe moving, say, about 10 spots, okay? Just slide up into, like, maybe 25. They've got that, they've got that number 37 pick. Now, historically, moving that far up, we've gone, and I mean, this is by no means uh, 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 scholarly, but we've kind of looked it over, and you can get away with it. You obviously would have to give up that second, but then you throw in a sixth or a seventh or something, and usually it's been good enough to move up around ten spots. Sometimes it'd have to be a conditional five. Hey, Josh, Josh, really quick. Yeah, I did. I was doing the research when I was completing my last mock here. Okay. I don't want to give away too much because I haven't I haven't posted it yet. Okay. But since since 2012, there's been five trades back into the first round. Okay. okay. The biggest jump was 24 spots. Right. And that was the Vikings. I, yeah, I remember that one. To I remember Cordero it, Patterson, uh, and all they gave up was a second, a fourth, and some late and two late round picks. That was it. And that was 24 spots. We're talking. That was 10. 24 spots. <laughs> We're talking 10 on average. The, and the Vikings are responsible for three of those jumps. Three of the five jumps, the Bears are not the Bears, but the Bucks and the 49ers were the other two teams. But um, the average distance the teams are jumping back into the first round is about nine slots. And what and was all it of them in a second and a fourth round pick? Okay, there you go. So I was <laughs> off. I was off by it. Second, <laughs> second to fourth. But I'm sure if you made it a conditional third for another year, if you wanted to defer, because if you're the Rams, you need picks. So you want to break this thing up, like amortize it if you can. Um, it, but it is moving up smart for the Rams. I guess let's start there. Let's start with a baseline question. Would that even be an intelligent thing to do? If they saw a guy on there, like, Let's say Corey Davis magically slides in and he's still chilling there at like 24. And and the Rams are like, no, nah, it's time. Let, let's make our move. Would that even be a smart thing to do? Uh, you know, I, I really do like Davis's game. Um, you know, I, especially that position to think about. Um, acquiring someone that, as you put that roster together, would probably take your X receiver position, you know, Woods which they need. It's sure, a huge need. Sure, and then you know, Woods takes your Z. Tavon's now in the slot. You've got your depth guys behind that, as you always will need to to continue to bring along. Uh, it, it's intriguing, you know. It's intriguing to think about that. The problem is that that fourth rounder this year at certain positions. Um, or I shouldn't just say that that fourth rounder, particularly in this year, is going to be a player. You know, when you're yeah. talking about those those top hundred picks, I and mean, there are there are definitive players in those ranges. And so to think about the opportunity cost of uh, losing a potential 46 man roster spot, if not a, a starter by year two, 
in order to go up and acquire that guy, you know, he better have a top 10 grade on your board. Like if he's got a, a grade of around the 25th pick, then I'm not, I don't see the value in going up to get him at that spot. Can if I pause? he's got a higher can, value than that, you, now you have my attention. Can, can I pause and ask a question that really should have been asked at the top of the hour, but I, I, I feel like I, I missed the bus on this one. And as you're sitting there talking this out, it occurs to me. Back when you, I, I assume you did scouting when you were with the Eagles. Is, is that, am I wrong? I was a pro scout for all three teams I worked with. So for okay. college, I was in the cross-check process. Okay. So what what I want to, to, to ask is this. When, when you're going through your process, walk me through your process on, say, a guy like Davis. If you were working for the Rams, how would this go down? Okay. In terms of presenting him to less, yeah. In terms of presenting him to rest, less, like let's say you really like this move and you want to make this move, or you think that this could, or or even not that you have any input on that, that 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 you're trying to send information up to less that this guy could potentially be worth that. How do you put this process together, you specifically? So it starts with your your film evaluation and then everything else that you collected on the individual and you come to your grade using your grading scale and every team that i worked with grading scale multiple categories for first rounders you typically had a grade for some kind of uh transcendent type player that you just rarely ever see in any draft class alone in an individual decade so that grade i was almost never used you had one for arguably a top five pick and then usually most teams had one for like a top 10 pick and then it was, you know, top 25 and first round or whatever. I mean, I, I saw grading skills at five different categories for first rounders. I'm not sure you need all that, but that's what's there. So you get done with that, and it, we'll go with the hypothetical here. Davis, and let's say I got done with him, and I have him as a top 10 player, for example. And you start to hear the word on the street right now that maybe there's some different camps. He didn't do the workout circuit. Maybe the, the market is fading on him and excited about other players. Uh, and you could see that individual drop. So then you start researching in, in that space. What are people saying? What are, you know, um, what are the major media outlets that are, you know, yes, they're acquiring information from teams. We all know a lot of it's misinformation and whatnot, but it's the best you've got. You call your sources, but they're, why would they give you any better information? Um, and you try to capture what you think the market value of the players and you say, okay, I'm hearing from my boots on the ground and what's out there that again, maybe Corey's going to be available around pick 25. So then just like you guys did, you go do the research on it and then you write it up and you walk into less with a presentation of okay here's our grade in the player i've got him as 10 um we think there's a reasonable chance to expect him to be down in the 25 range in this class uh here's what it would cost to go up here are players that would be down there that we'd be giving up in order to get him i would you know here's what the coaching staff has been has historically done with an ex-receiver of this caliber in their past uh, and you just you outline the whole thing, you know, not just where he's at now. You know, do you think Corey is a guy that's closer to his ceiling or is he on the rise? You know, you got to work through that assessment. So is it more is his right now projection in grade 
closer to his overall ability, or do we need to do things to bring him along? Again, what does he do to unlock other pieces of our offense? You just you think about it all, and you write it up, and you bring it in, um, depending on the decision maker you're working for. Sometimes you hang and you debate it, and they bring some other people in the room, and you talk through it, and sometimes they just take it into consideration, and you find out when they make the move whether or not your pitch uh, was bought into. That's I so that's valuable information. Yeah, yeah. I've always been intrigued by the process of. I mean, there, there there's the job, and then there's the job, you know. And and we all kind of know what the job is, but that does it. That 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 scratches merely the surface. Like to borrow from NTV, you think you know, but you have no idea. You know, uh, going back to that generation, but. Like you, you say you like Corey Davis. So I'll I'll, I'll pass over to Mycin and we'll start winding <laughs> down here so we can uh, get you out of here on time. But uh, you know, uh, I, I I ask, do you think that it would be worth it for the Rams? It's intriguing. But ultimately, do you think they'd be better at like Mycin said? maybe trading back and acquiring more. I, I'm of the opinion. Um, I don't think you need to trade back a thousand times. I don't think you need 15 picks in a draft. I'm not sure having seven sixth rounders is a game changer in any way, shape or form. I, I significantly value picks um, between 50 and a hundred. Uh, you know, I know it's not sexy, but if I can get a whole bunch of them, uh, you can usually put together a heck of a roster. And again, if you just go back and look at who they've drafted between 15 and 100, you know, Rob, Rob Havenstein's taking a pick 57 in his given year. You know, you know, it's not sexy. Um, maybe it's not putting butts in seats from a fan base perspective, but quality ball players, and, and you, you can make teams um, off of that. So I like to acquire players or picks particularly in that range. So, you know, the idea of going up um, there you know, I'd have to be in love with the player. I, you know, I'm not sure Davis is my guy on that one. I really like his game. I don't know if giving up another out of curiosity, to get who would game. be your guy? Guys that would intrigue me to to go up and to, get to go up if they if the, if they fell to the, like that move up about ten or twelve range. Who, yeah, who like would a, if a guy like Forrest Lamp was available there. I'd be very intrigued. You know, I would highly consider making a move. Um, you know, I think for, uh, I think the Melifanu kid from UConn really intrigues me uh, and the versatility he brings. The guy's played forever from quarters to man to single high to down. Um, I think a guy like that for Wade would really intrigue me. But then again, he might be available at 37. It's, it's plausible. Um, you know, I just don't see too many guys – that I see giving up an additional potential starter to go get. Like there's good players I'd be happy to take, you know, if I had a higher pick sure. to give up and go get. I just don't know how many guys are like, oh, I have to go acquire him. Um, and I think, in that I, and I think that in and of itself is the answer. You know, and say, hey, the Rams would probably be better served to either stay where they're at or try and acquire more picks in that 50 to 100 range. That that would be, in other words, what the Cleveland Browns are doing would be the optimal objective. 
Yeah, especially for the, the again, those premium picks, um, you know, top 75, if you can get them top 100, I think it's still all right. Uh, those are phenomenal assets to have, uh, you know, where this year alone, uh, they're sitting there at 112, 33 and 52. It's ridiculous. That's not a bad place to be. No. And, and I could easily see, you know, 12 if, you know, let's say they were in love with a quarterback, for example, Mahomes. and he's not there at 12. I could see them getting out of that and continuing to acquire picks. Yeah, that would make that me acquire even more in the second and first. Uh, man, the, the <laughs> thing the thing with the Browns is this. I've been told from back to real sadness. Yeah, the, the, well, I've been told by the, the, the few Browns fans that I have that follow me. They're like, look. We're used to having a bevy of picks. That's not the issue. It's what the organization does with said picks that ends up being the issue. Right now is the time everybody's excited. It's after they've made 112-32 and whatever it was that people wind up being pissed off because you think you're getting Garrett Mahomes... You know, and maybe maybe like Elf Line or somebody, because obviously they need to improve that offensive line. And and instead, you end up getting like Christian Ponder early. I, I, I mean, you get the idea. Sure. And the, the idea of having more uh, shots at this, you know, people always talk about, well, having more shots leads to better outcomes. No, having more shots means you have more shots. If you're if you're better at aiming and and where to yeah. take those shots, you can be better off. I mean, there's teams that pick you know eight players with a couple comp- compensatories each year. You know, Baltimore's and Green Bay's come to mind, and they're fine. Maybe some years they take ten, and they get a lot of players out of that. And then there's teams that have twelve, thirteen picks and find two guys out of the whole thing. So no, I don't think sheer volume is what you're going for again, it's identifying players that actually work for you. New England's board. If you listen to Casario's press conference the other day, they have 50 to 75 guys. That's it. That they're even considering drafting and they'll get through all seven rounds and have people on their board and they'll be fine with that number. You know, so this is, you know, they, they focus in. And again, I talked about their, their hit rates, not ideal. And you guys just claimed, uh, a player that was a, a top pick for them. Um, but Trey Jackson. Trey Jackson, but it's not about yeah, it's not it's not just about uh, taking shots. You you gotta you gotta know who That's you're bringing in. That's what's insane to me that nobody ever talks about. Well, I mean, you are right now, but nobody ever talks about this in the broader scheme of things. The Patriots, and, and I'm just gonna say this in, in 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 a joking fashion. It might not be the most professional way to put it, but the Patriots suck at drafting. Like when you talk about how awesome and incredibly amazing they are at everything else, I feel it is okay to say this one thing. This is the one area where the Patriots just do not hit, and yet you would think. Common logic would would dictate that because the Patriots draft so poorly on a routine basis that they wouldn't even be contenders and that could not be further from the truth. Like it is it is almost insane to me. Like I I am intrigued by it. I am I, I don't even hate on I am intrigued. I want to know how somebody can be so bad at one portion of the game. Like, how is it that that's the the thing the Patriots are bad at? 
How is so, that the thing? Here is my my devil's advocate answer to it. Okay. And the one, the two saving grace when you have that head coach and that quarterback. Sure, right? sure. A, a lot, a lot of things. Can, a lot can be of sins well. are forgiven with those. They teams. are one of the best at leveraging the player trade market. We yes. don't trade the existing players. We're always trading on the potential of what picks can be uh, become. Right, and as you mentioned, all the Cleveland fans are excited about 112, 33, and 52 until they find out who those players actually are, and we'll see what happens at that point. Um, but we always we love these picks, these commodities, the, these these resources that we we hope turn into these valuable assets. Um, but there are existing assets out there that are undervalued that they have a great ability to go acquire and then work for them. And then they also are one of the few organizations that just because they invested in you, if you're not better than somebody else that they acquired yeah. wherever they acquired them from, they'll drop you. That's They're different. not beholden to the idea of I spent, you know, X pick on you. Greg so Robinson. Therefore, <laughs> so therefore I have to find a way to make you successful. Otherwise I look bad. They don't care. Because I'm going to win, and that's going to cure all ills. When you live in fear of how you're going to be judged in this process, and you work as that is a primary motivation, I can't imagine that's going to lead to positive outcomes. Because, again, you're going to be constantly twisting things to revisionist history this so that you don't look so bad. Whereas if you come into it and you go, it just didn't work out. Drop them and move on. Yeah. And that's... That's, that, I mean, see, that's all the perspective. I would, go ahead, Mason. No, I was going to say, like, I mean, I agree with that 100%. And that's exactly what it is. That's the reason why the Patriots can have 75 players on their board because it doesn't really make sense to have, you know, 300, <laughs> 400 players. You're not going to ha- you're not going to draft all those guys, you know. When he you know, said that, it, I, think, I was like, well, that seems logical to me because. Yeah, I mean, be honest, when you really think about it, how much time. How much time are you wasting when you're trying to, you know, scout 400 guys? You know, you're wasting a lot of time, you know, whereas if you could lock in on these guys in particular and then you like he said, you know, the Patriots, they tend to bring in players from all over and it doesn't really matter. I mean, they they uh, just, you know, signed Mike Gillisley to an offer sheet and he's on a he's on an original pick tender with the Bills. So, it, you know, it doesn't look like the Bills are going to match it. So he could leave. And the Patriots only give up a fifth round pick. That's like that's like they just drafted him almost, you know. So, and whoever <laughs> they have on the roster with all those backs, whoever he's better than, he, they're just going to be gone. And that's just that how Chandler, it works. <laughs> that Chandler Jones trade was just a, that. That was a piece that 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 belongs yeah. in the National Football Hall of Fame. No, no, the Brandon Cooks trade. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair. We don't talk that, about just that. Just we, one. just we, just we. You thought the Patriots couldn't get any richer on offense, <laughs> but um, I mean, Daniel, I, I mean, you kind of, uh, you kind of just hit on everything that I was saying when we were talking about the very thing with the Browns about two weeks ago on the show. Um, I mean, everyone talks about the quantity, and you know, Josh mentioned it then. You know, you know, they have all these picks and. My response was, well, they always have all these picks, <laughs> you know, but look what have, look what they've done with it. You know, last year they drafted four or five receivers. None of them played except for Corey Coleman, <laughs> you know, so it's like um, what, what exactly are they doing with all these picks? And, you know, I, I wish I could talk to you all night because 
you, you really just kind of dove right into the, where I was going with it again. But, you know, you mentioned that there's this cluster of receivers that's going to be there, you know, from the second round on through the middle rounds. And um, one thing that I have said, I started saying back in October, and I say probably every week now, Josh is probably tired of hearing me say it, is <laughs> that it, when you get to the uh, fourth round, I really honestly feel that, you know, because this draft is, in my opinion, the deepest draft that I've seen in at the very least 10 years, um, because this draft is so deep, when you get to the fourth round, you're still going to be able to find a starter at safety. You're going to find a starter at linebacker. There's going to be a lot of quality players there in the fourth round. So I agree with you on losing that pick, what it would, uh, what it, what you could be losing ultimately by trading up. Um, with that being said, though, uh, my question to you is, when you get past the second round, as far as receivers go, you know, because you mentioned, you know, if, if you're the Rams, you're looking for offensive line help, which I'm not opposed to at all. Uh, but when you get past the second round, as far as receivers go, who would you say are the most likely to be available, the best receivers that's most likely to be available in that third and fourth round range? I think it's going to be interesting in terms of what body type and skill set you're looking for. Again, there's a there's that element of the players aren't necessarily scheme agnostic where they're all plug and play. And when you look at what was just invested in Woods and then where his skill set is and then the existing resources put into somebody like in Austin, um, I do imagine that they're going to be interested in a bigger body, um, more historically X receiver type. Um, you know, some guys that are going to be mentioned in that range might be like the Josh Reynolds type uh, body frame, you know, depending on where they're at. You know, do they think an Amara Darbo uh, brings an interesting skill set there as an Ardarius Stewart out of Alabama, someone that might be able to balance out some things? Uh, you know, I think when you start talking about something like the Isaiah Fords, I'm not sure that's really a direction they're going to want to go and kind of double down on. On those resources, I think they, like I said, they might look for a little different body type. Okay, well, that I mean, that pretty much sums that up. <laughs> Josh, <laughs> did you have anything else? I mean, I mean, you did. You pretty much summed that up. Um, and I agree with you. And um, it's it's something that you know we talked about a, cu- a couple of weeks ago on here is the focus, uh, the lack of focus that oftentimes teams have on is a player a good fit for our scheme? <laughs> you know, uh, does he really work out? What, what, would he, what does he bring to the table for this team? You know, so I'm glad you let off with that because that's kind of was my next question. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, you let off with that. So, <laughs> so you, you kind of killed two birds with one stone there. <laughs> you know, I like, I like the efficiency. So, you know, we'll be all right. I, <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> yeah. My, my last question is this, and, and it's, it's, it's strictly debate-wise. Um, the Rams, there's um, the Rams even tweeted about this and have tweeted about him several times. Dory Jackson um, makes sense. The Rams share a uh, uh, a home with the USC Trojans. Oh, I'm sure Dory. there's a handshake agreement to feature. You know, hey, we brought in it, it gets some publicity. And if you're the Trojans, not that their players are short of it anyways, but that kind of stuff helps in recruiting. So, of course, you want to exploit that. Um, but uh, Adoree Jackson has you know, linked at number 37 to the Rams. And I, I've kind of been vehemently against the pick. 
Uh, I, I, I love Adori. I thought he was a phenomenal athlete at USC. I, I, I will say I, I, this is going to be, it sounds like, like bitter, but I don't mean it. Like I don't, I feel he left not having done as much as he could have. He did so much, but I feel like maybe he wanted to accomplish more would be the best way to rephrase it. I feel like he will look back and feel like he maybe wandered a bit more out of it. Um, that That's the hunger of any athlete, though. But when I look at how many touchdowns he gave up, that alarms me compared to other corners. And I look at a guy like Sidney Jones, who uh, you know, prior to his injury was one of the most dominant corners in, in the entire nation, and, and the possibility that he could be around. <clears throat> I would say take a guy like that over Adoree Jackson nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten. It, am, am I wrong? Am I... Am I being too critical of Adoree Jackson? Is there is there something that I'm missing, or how do you see him? Uh, so we had a third round grade on him when we put our board okay. together. So we're, so we're cool. Same. We we we're on the same page. Same thing I said. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. So talking talking about him at 37 is a bit rich relative to the class and and where we saw his his skill set fitting in. Um, you know, if you buy into the other things that he can do and you need those things, obviously then his value for your organization might be higher. Uh, it's a little bit tough for me to swing that. And again, going back to that conversation we just had about the Patriots, um, longtime friend of mine, you know, Alan Dandar, we used to have these long philosophical discussions about X, Y, or Z. And he would always finish with, if I, if I made any argument relative to, um, you know, any, anything related to, to, again, the USC, local, L.A., you know, uh, you know, the owners and the business side wants to get excited. He goes, winning sells. You know, we go back to the Patriots. Winning sells. That's that's what people come for. The rest of it is is just fluff. So if you're looking at the board and anybody in the room pipes in that, well, he's a local kid and that'll help us sell tickets, then I don't think you're moving in the right direction because winning sells. So the conversation better be that he is the best player to activate in Wade's system and move us forward. Now, the other name that you mentioned, you know, I was actually not against what Trent Balky was trying in the medical redshirt concept when they had the stocked roster. And they took the Brandon Thomas uh, pick off the ACL and the Marcus Lattimore. Again, when the roster was stocked and you were saying, I can redshirt him because I don't need him to play now. And then hopefully I'm getting an undervalued asset. Now, unfortunately, the rehab of those players and ultimately their performance did not pan out. So the move did not pan out. The roster overall became weakened and everything did, didn't deteriorated for him ultimately in his job was uh, no longer retained. So when I look at a situation like this, to your first pick, number 37, uh, on somebody that cannot help you this year, I mean, he just had this injury. I mean, I guess it's it's somewhat plausible he could come back, but to bring him back to a level where he's confident in all the movements and making the plays he has been making before, I, I, I find it hard to believe your doctors are going to say that. So to spend your premium capital in this class on someone you're not going to see until the 2018 season, um, 
you're you're putting a lot of eggs in that basket. That's that's um, fair. That's fair. I I I just when I looked at the players that they had, and it could be possible that it was because he was playing alongside Kevin King. Like that'll make everybody look good too. That entire Washington secondary was something special. So you're right, and and if they're projecting him not to come back till 2018. I hadn't read that. I mean, I knew I had the injury, but I I'd, I'd heard he would be available in 2017. But you know that. I'm sure right now his camp is saying that. So but that his draft stock maintains. I got to imagine with with an Achilles injury, which I believe is what it was. Um, you know that it's just a long. It's a hard one to get comfortable again right. from from everybody that I've talked to in a position that <sighs> takes reactive athleticism to be there and to do that. Uh, again, it's it, he just has to be confident in it, and, and I don't know if throwing him in midseason into a new scheme in the NFL, coming off an injury and expecting performance, um, and hopefully what you're you're aiming for a playoff caliber season, uh, you know, it just seems like a bit much to anticipate in year one. That is a completely fair point, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, this is why I do not draft for a living is because <laughs> I would do stupid crap like that. And There's also a reason I don't draft for a yeah. living. The idea of being able to, to value all of these players. Like I, I tell everybody the evaluation of their skill sets is the easy part. There's a lot of people both on teams and off of teams that can evaluate skill sets, deciding how much that skill set is worth relative to the market is an entirely different skill set and not one that every quality evaluator can do. So <laughs> there's there's a reason why guys who are very, very smart about the game don't maintain GM status. Just just real quickly, explain like how how difficult of a pro like what how do you even go about doing that? Like how how I mean, is it is it just calling around like you said, talking to those sources, gauging where he's at, and then your best guess of saying, okay, we think this guy is worth it here. Like, is it? It's just one of those things where you either have it or you don't. Is that? It's sort of like being an athlete. Is that ultimately what it comes down to in your experience? I, I do think that there's an opportunity to get better at it. The problem is, is that you don't have the runway as the team builder to get better at it necessarily on the right. job. If you come out and you bomb early on, that roster is not going to be competitive enough for you to maintain your status. So you better have some level of acumen with it beforehand. And they're, they don't hire retreads. So everybody that gets these jobs is brand new. You know, when Les got his job, he hadn't been a GM in three other places before he got there. This isn't basketball or hockey where they use these guys over and over and over again in different spots. So coming in, the, the basic question you have to ask yourself is how much am I willing to give up to get him? That's the question. And if we put 10 guys in a room and talked about Sidney Jones, you'd have 10 answers. That's the hard part. It's the beauty of it. It's the fun of it. It's the reason why the discussions are as insightful as they are across the entire spectrum and why we can talk about this at nauseum for months and months because there's, there isn't an answer. And then once he gets drafted, we can look back and think that we had it right originally, but his performance is only relative to that organization. They're the ones that extract that from him. 
You know, I love the Dak Prescott conversation this year. Phenomenal season. Good right. for him. Good for Dallas. Good for everybody. You can't tell me that if he went to thirty any of the other thirty-one teams, he would have done the same thing. Yeah, it's 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 the, the the sociology of it is fascinating because people people often forget context and what you're looking at are sample sizes and even then just the briefest of sample sizes because it's but one of thirty-two teams. Like, sure. We can surmise that Peyton Manning probably would have success with Denver. But, you know, the one thing that you can never do is go back and redraft a Dak Prescott on to say was uh, the Rams. Let's say the Rams drafted Dak instead of Jared Goff. Like, you can't tell me that Dak would have ended up having the same season. No. I mean, you can you can hope, but it's just revisionist history. I mean, it's just you trying to fit a narrative at that point. So I don't I don't envy the guys in these jobs. They're there. It's a tough job. It's long hours. It is everybody in the world is is second guessing you on everything that you do, uh, and sometimes rightfully so. Sometimes, like not all the information about these players ever hits the airwaves. Like I remember hearing and seeing and being exposed to things about players that have never ever been discussed about those players and impacted our decision-making about them, and no one else knows about it. Yeah, I was actually a little surprised, and I wish we had a bit more time, because I would, I would, I was about to ask Myson, hey, how you feeling about your Joe Mixon pick after the latest bit of news? But... Because well, we had done a previous, <laughs> we had done, we had done a previous podcast where he was like, "Look, he's gonna be there," and and it's funny that you talked about that that you would venture to guess that like sixty percent of the the defensive snaps were played in X, because we said something like, "I would venture to guess that sixty percent of NFL snaps are played in four and five wide sets." Like we said that on the other podcast. And if you're playing to the strengths of Jared Goff, you're not going to have this guy lined up under center. Like, like, you have to make a decision. Todd Gurley or Jared Goff, they, those two, I do not think, can coexist in the same environment. Todd Gurley is a power-eye downhill runner. Todd Jared Goff is an air raid formation cornerback and would probably do better at, at just at getting that guy in shotgun letting them line them up and just throw it. But Todd Gurley can't run out of that. Joe Mixon can. He did that at Oklahoma. He was used to playing in Bob Stoops' spread formation. So it would make sense for the Rams. But then after the latest news, I, I don't know that I touched well, the guy with Josh, Josh, I knew you, when I heard about that this morning, I said, you I knew guarantee was Josh up. brings this up. I guess I guarantee he brings it up. However, however, within an hour, the dad came out and recanted that statement and cleared everything up, cool. saying that that was actually from years ago and it never actually happened. He said he he said himself, the father himself who said all that, said, I jumped to conclusions. I didn't know the full story. I didn't know what happened. Joe Mixon never actually hit my daughter. But I know this and, and I am sure Dan will attest to this. The fact that that second story came up is going to oh, be yeah, absolutely. Enough for, enough, <laughs> for enough NFL teams. 
They're going to be like, I I saw a report from one of the major writers, and I I forget who it was, that said he'd already heard from two different teams that are now forced to go explore the validity of that claim. No information is irrelevant in the process. How much it's weighed in the process varies depending on what it is, but nothing's irrelevant. It all gets considered. Uh, But again, it it makes it the the beauty of it and the difficulty of it and uh, something we can all sit around and, and enjoy. Absolutely. So let's get you out of here on this, man. We like to give every guest the opportunity to A, tell people where they can find them on social media, and B, make people aware of anything they have coming up. Or if you happen to also work with a charitable organization and want to spread some information about that, now we you could allow you that platform to do that as well. So this is your time, Mr. Hatman. Take her away. Well, we are... Uh... We, being the Scouting Academy, are coming up on our summer semester starting on May 15th. Uh, We have 70% of that class already full, I believe, at this point. Um, Excited. We got to announce in February our ninth alumni uh, earned an NFL spot in Tampa. We do have an alumni working for the Rams currently and another 32 in college. Uh, So it's been quite the joy of watching these guys take the curriculum and then move forward in their career. Really a blessing on that front. So if anybody has interest in exploring uh, NFL side of things, CFL, college, agency, coaching, analysts, we've had them all through. We've helped as many of them uh, as want to put in the time uh, to improve themselves. We're always open to help people in that area. And if you want to find me on my soapbox talking about this stuff, uh, you can catch us or myself at uh, Dan underscore Hatman and then the Scouting Academy at the scout academy and do you guys have a uh, a podcast of any type i don't know if you guys happen to do any of that stuff but uh, we don't at the academy uh we have been trying to do is leverage our twitter platform as an educational experience so uh trying to tweet you know videos articles resources what have you to help people grow and their knowledge of everything from the x's and the o's to the evaluation side so uh please check that out and then let us know if there's anything else you'd like us to do we want that we want to be an educational experience for everybody not just those who come take the course that's awesome i may actually have to get at you because i've always been curious about the process by which this happens and and how like one goes about getting getting better at this stuff i'm like if one wanted to how would one even and 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 now you've answered my question so yes i am i you have gained an interested party tonight so thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us we know you have an obligation so let's get you out of here in a timely fashion dan hatman ladies and gentlemen uh man we cannot thank you enough hey thanks for having me and uh i enjoyed talking with you guys if you want to have me back just let me know so mycin i honestly feel like that might have been one of the most informative podcasts we've ever done strictly from a learning level i would agree you know um when he kind of broke down the process of what goes on in the war room, <laughs> you see, know. See, I felt when he was talking about forgetting to ask that question to like halfway through. Like, I don't know why it occurred to me in that moment to be like, "Wait a minute, this seems like such an obvious thing to have needed to ask this guy." Like, and I almost yeah. didn't do it. 
Yeah, you know, when he when he broke it down, though, it was like there was a lot of stuff that he said was like, OK, yeah, you know, those are things I've thought about. But then there was stuff he said where I was like, you know, I never looked at it. I never thought to include that into the equation. You know, so when he when he talked, when he broke it down about what you have to do before you present it to your general manager of, hey, let's go try to get this guy. (laughs) And, you know, this isn't this isn't something that you're doing in uh, January saying, hey, let's go trade up and get him. This is something he's saying that you're doing like in the war room, you know, during the draft. Like, hey, this player is available. I had him here. We might need to do this, you know, like that's that was a uh, that was interesting. That was very, very, very informative. So I would agree with you there. That was uh, some information that, you know, yeah, value information that you just don't is, get off. The crazy part is, is I wonder what he didn't include that's also presented, you know, because, again, nobody, nobody right. can ever give away the full bag. Like, right. can't do that. Yeah. nobody does. Yeah. Like, and I hope the fans would know that. But it's just like, wow, like. All of that stuff that I already hadn't thought of, and then there's stuff that he isn't ever going to tell us. Like he said, there's stuff they learn about people that they never tell anybody. Like, to this day, we're probably worshipping somebody who did something that's, like, despicable. And and, it just hasn't come out yet. Absolutely. That's that's always going to be the case. (laughs) <laughs> There's always that's always going to be the case. There's always going to be players that drop, and everyone says, "Oh, why did he drop?" Every single year, there's six, seven, eight guys who you thought were going to be gone in the third round, second, third round, and you look up, it's the fifth round. They're still there. And they're like, "What? Well, wait a minute, why is he still there?" And you know, little do you know, there's stuff that the scouting department found that others didn't. That you know, just the general public don't you know know nothing about. So that's yeah. always going to be the case. You know, and I would be remiss, I guess, if we didn't take two seconds to talk about probably today's biggest NFL story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was it's ter- it's really a terrible story. You know, just yeah, tragedy from beginning he, to end. You know, I mean, Bill Belichick when he said that, like when they asked for one word to describe it, tragedy, like from beginning to end, just yeah. a tragedy. Like, and now, like, I was reading an article where he'll actually be considered innocent because he had filed an appeal or something. I don't know how true that yeah. is. I don't know if that's been dispelled or if that's going to be the case. Like, like, you know, I heard I heard about that. And um, the number one thing um, without getting too political, uh, the number one thing that was kind of included into this discussion about him being cleared of all charges you know we know he just got cleared for double murder but being cleared of the Odin lloyd as well is the lack of a murder weapon like there's really nothing other than he say she say and maybe he did maybe he didn't that ties him to it there's no hardcore evidence that was ever presented in the case that said okay this is our guy you know so there was the, there was that lack of benefit of the doubt and um, when I was when I, I don't know if we were at the same report, but when I was reading up on it, they were talking about that it felt more like um, the jury and the judge and everybody made the final verdict based off based off of his body language, you know, because that was the big thing that was constantly talked about when the trial was going on was his body language was so calm and this demeanor of just like a whatever type of approach, like it really rubbed people the wrong way. And they were just like, he had to have done it, (laughs) you know, because of his body language. And uh, 
you know, you, you just can't send people to jail for that. And I, that was part of the reason they were saying that this could get reversed. So, I mean, for me, the thing that's the saddest part about it outside of that is um, what because, you know, we'll never know if he did or didn't do it. The saddest part about it is, you know, when he when he got cleared of the double murder, you know, they show him in the courtroom with like his little daughter who's four years old. You know, that's the saddest part. You know, he leaves behind his fiance and his his daughter. And it's just like it's really it's really a tragedy. I was you know? kind of thinking the saddest part about all this is that there are four dead people's families who will never have any kind of closure whatsoever. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll never have any sort of closure. <laughs> that's. That's kind of what I feel is is like the biggest thing in all of this is, you know, um, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I've never pretended to be a lawyer, so right. I will never get into case specifics. All I know is is that he was found guilty and whether or not like. Well, I understand that that, 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 that that there are problems with the system. I've never said there aren't. It's the best we've got right now. And that while there was a, a load of circumstantial evidence, there was also a load of circumstantial evidence that definitely made him look guilty. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and there were things that happened both before, during, and after each trial that didn't exactly like the, the, the blood statues and things of that nature. Right. Like it just like, they're not normally things people do. Exactly. If, like, you, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just don't one day go down. If I've not killed somebody, I, I just don't one day go down and get like, my set tattoo. You know, I'm going to be like, hey, you know, I, yeah. I think I want to be part of that game today. Like, you just don't do that. So, while that doesn't make him a murderer, being in a gang does not make him a murderer, there are just a lot of oddities about this entire thing. Absolutely. And, and, Absolutely. And, that's, and that's what it is. It's oddity and tragedy and, and, and uncertainty. And it sucks that there are a whole bunch of people from beginning to end, whether it's the family of Aaron Hernandez, whether it's his daughter when she grows up, whether it's the victim's families of the people he allegedly and, well, not allegedly, was con were convicted of killing and then was exonerated of killing, uh, uh, there's just there are no answers in the wall. The, there's just a lot of why. Yeah, that, exactly. That's what yeah, everybody is going to be asking. There's really there's really nothing that's kind of cleared up. It's really yeah, muddy it's in all angles. You know, of all the cases of every you know, there's three there's three deaths here that we're talking about, and of all three, there is just really muddy. Nothing's clear. It's a mess, really. The entire what? thing is a mess. It's, it's really the whole situation is sad. You know, is 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 terrible that it ends like this. Um, you know, because no, like I said, you're never gonna you're never gonna find out what really happened. You know, no, the world will never know. Now you're now, no matter what, you're never gonna convince anyone of anything. Right. And, exactly. And guys, real quick, we you guys are talking about how you know just odd and sad everything is, and of course it is, but really, even the end just seems odd. 
doesn't seem odd yeah, to that's you guys. What I mean. that's yeah, what I mean. yeah, that's what I mean. Like the way that Aaron, it all ended even, is even Aaron and even Aaron Hernandez's family has why. Like they're asking why they don't know why he killed himself. His daughter won't know yeah, why like, or if you know. Like, like there are a lot of people who aren't going to get answers because right now people in Aaron Hernandez's camp are saying he didn't kill himself. Well, if that's the case then that means somebody did kill him. And they're probably not going to get that answer either. No. Because, I mean, you... And that's what I mean. It's just, it's crazy how it ended. You know, it's the whole thing just kind of for it to come full circle like this. Um, It's it's, it's really a tragedy. And to see the heights that he was at and then to see where it's all at now, it's it's really, really sad. Yeah, I'm not not only a conspiracy theory guy, but you look at you look at a guy who, what, probably been in jail for 10 years, went through that whole case of, uh, and got, you know, acquitted of the double murder. Of course, he was still serving 30 years to life for un- Lloyd's murder. But, I mean, he just gives up now? It just seems really odd. Yeah, but let me say this, man. <clears throat> a lot of people talking about that. And I'm going to say this. Getting a murder case overturned is one of the most impossible things to do in this country. Okay? Right. I don't care how much money you have. Getting a judge to reopen a case that has been fairly tried is damn near impossible. And getting a judge to say that something has been unfairly tried, if they don't have substantive proof, is tantamount to career career suicide. Like you try, you nuke another judge's opinion like that without without the evidence to support. Uh, yeah, I mean, look. There, mental health, mental disease, when the, the, Aaron Hernandez, I just want to say, if, if Aaron Hernandez was, were in a state where he was just in his cell looking at things and thinking like, holy crap, like, okay, I got off the one, but now how the hell am I going to get out of here, you know? Like, Massachusetts definitely thinks I'm guilty. Like, they're not going to let me go or wherever he's currently being held. I, I kind of stopped keeping tabs of the case a long time ago. <clears throat> but if, if he's sitting there looking at that and, and just were overcome, like, it, people who commit suicide, like, the, 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 the fact that they... Why now? They were doing so well. Like, that happens all the time. Like, I cannot begin to tell you the number of people. Like, I have a personal story. I have a friend. I'll just call him Scott. Scott and I were at a party for one of my fraternity brothers, his birthday party. And... and, We're drinking, hanging out. Like, I've known Scott from the Cal State Pub. Like, we always used to chill after classes and drink. 
Like, so now that I was hanging out with him with my fraternity, like, it was awesome. Like, the record, Scott this was isn't life me, of... everybody. No, but no, I, they'll find out very quickly that it's not you. Scott is the life of the party. And then I found out that Scott left the party, went down the street to his work, pulled out a gun, and shot himself. This is a guy I was partying with. This is a guy that I was hanging out with, that I was doing shots with. Left the party that I was at, went down the street, and killed himself. He was the life of the party. Everything was going well. Scott had just gotten a promotion at his job. Scott had a wonderful girlfriend. Can't even begin to talk about the awesome family that he has. And Scott decided to kill himself. The fact that Aaron Hernandez had everything to live for does not mean he didn't kill himself. And it is by no means odd. And it bothers me that people are saying that because it diminishes the number of people who have committed suicide showing no signs of it. And, and their family is like, I never thought he would do this. Like, it happens all the time. It's an epidemic in this country. People should stop saying it's rare. Like, it's it's not. <laughs> it's a problem. And, and it's one that this country needs to address. We need to be better at mental health. And we all address it on Twitter. You know, Twitter's actually pretty good about mental health. And we talk about it a lot. So... You know, I, I don't know what was going through Aaron Hernandez's head. If he did, if he didn't, I, I don't know. Like like Myson said, myself, the victims, the, the murder victims, Aaron's daughter, his family, their families, his brother, everybody is going to have a lot of questions. And that's the tragedy of it all. Is that all of this happened, nobody's going to know why. Exactly. Sad. Sad. So, but on that note, on that note, we cannot thank Dan Hatman enough for the level of knowledge that he provided. Hopefully, <clears throat> you think that the information we had was so awesome, you'll forgive the somber discussion at the end. But at the end of the day, it was a big story, and it involves the NFL. While we're not a Patriots blog, it's still a pretty big story and involves the NFL. So, you know, we talked about it. Forgive us. But we'll be back next week with an all-new show. We will have the show posted by Thursday for the people who are about to tweet me all day tomorrow. I promise you, the show will be up on Thursday. <clears throat> Scott, you going to have it tomorrow? It'll be up tonight. It'll be up tonight. Oh, man. This is awesome. It's this early is enough I can get, get it up tonight. All right. There it is. It'll be up tonight. So I will tweet the link for you guys. So we will catch you next time for my son and myself here on SB Nation's Hope 
for the LA Rams, Tertial Times. This is Josh Webb and Myson for TST Radio. Ace. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Gotta get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Kerryu, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.